Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Pagans Tonight Radio Network, the voice of the pagan world. Pagans Tonight is sponsored by Witchschool.com, your anyone, anytime, anywhere magical education. Hello, and thank you for tuning in today. I am Michael Glaywell, artist, traveler, all-around geek, witch, and brother initiate of the Endlane Path. This is Matthew Sidney, writer, musician, teacher of the Unmean Path, and student of life. <laughs> and you are listening to Walking the Unmean Path. On this podcast, we discuss the teachings and techniques given to us by the ancestors of men who love men uh, that have been laid out by our Yep, I've been laid out by a late founder, Hyperion. We also touch on topics and ideas pertaining to queer pagan men in general. We're glad you've decided to join us today, and we hope you'll be part of the show, either by calling in at area code 347-308-8222, or you can drop us an email at walkingtheendingpath at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at walking underscore the UP, or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Walking the Unnamed Path. Now, how have you been, Matthew? It's been a little bit. I've been doing well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I've been doing very well. Uh, you know, these are these are busy times. I'm, uh, and I guess this is a good thing, very deep into my spiritual work. So doing a lot of meditation, and uh, I'm uh, am in the middle of teaching a course. So uh, my students are going through shadow work, and I'm doing it with them. Uh, so I'm going through the um, the shadow working part of the unnamed path um, apprenticeship um, all over again. And because you know, one of the things we say is you, your shadow work is never finished. You just got to stay on top of it your whole yeah. life. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's positive knock on wood. I think I'm uh, fairly balanced and, and in a good place to wrestle with everything. I, I, you know, there's certainly things that come up. I mean, one thing, especially in these past two weeks, is um, seeing how, in general, there seems to be a zeitgeist of people on edge being um, intolerant, people overreacting to one another. And sometimes it touches your personal life, you know, when uh, certain um, members of one's uh, circle of close friends or members of one's family or you know, um, having issues and they're being triggered and everyone's shadow is coming up. And, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, I feel like I'm in a good place, but, you know, it's, it's hard when people around you, people close to you that you care about are, are struggling and sometimes they're just really limited in, in what we can do. And, um, you know, it can be challenging when, when two friends or two family members, um, have some kind of conflict one decides not to talk with the other and then you're left saying, Oh my gosh, <laughs> guys fix this. You know, <laughs> I don't, uh, this is a, you know, unhappy place to be, you know, be the middle, so to speak. So, but I think, I mm-hmm. think we're all being triggered um, by what's going on in the world. I think it, all of us are being called to um, take stock of ourselves and take responsibility for how we're responding to things and take responsibility for, our own hot buttons and being aware and also being aware that there's a lot in the media, a lot going on politically that is intended to keep us off balance. And we have to stay united against the, you know, the real agents of oppression, one and 
Could you say that last little bit again, Matthew, because you kind of buzzed out? Yeah, I'll gladly say it again. It's important for (laughs) us, and by us I mean members of your community, your close circle of friends, uh, your close family. It's important for all of us to maintain our unity and not turn on one another. We must stay united against the true agents of oppression because what I'm seeing or, or friends not talking to each other because, you know, one is having issues with the others or the same thing with family dynamics. And, um, you know, it's, it's, that's what, you know, that's what the agents of, of nihilism want. They want us to, to, you know, the, the bigots want us to stop talking to each other because when, when, when we stop talking to each other, we become that much weaker and that much easier for, for them to uh, silence. Um, and it's, it's doing the enemy's work, so to speak. So it's important for us to always focus on mending bridges with one another. You know, one of the best ways to do that is listening and to each other. You know, listen to yes. the person who you're having a disagreement with. See if there is something you can both do to fix it. And if there's really nothing you can do to fix it, you just have to be like, okay, we can't do anything about it and just move on. Mm-hmm. But yeah. But yeah. How are you doing? Uh, I am doing okay. <laughs> it's been a crazy couple of weeks. Uh, I've gotten some news from a couple of friends, from some coworkers and stuff. And it's just kind of, it's thrown everything a little bit out of whack. And then I've also come to some real, realizations on some stuff that I have coming up. So I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, I don't know if this is going to work. <laughs> so I'm needing to take inventory of stuff that is going on around me at the moment. Just that time of the year, we're getting close to um, Samhain and everything else that, you know, comes to an end in fall. So, you know, it's that time of the year, really. It sure is. But, yeah. Other than that, I'm doing pretty good. I may be getting, I may be coming down with a cold. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm going to take some medicine after the show just to nip it in the bud because I just don't it. But yeah. Well, anyway. I think you. I think you can beat it. I think you can beat it. Well, t- today I've been telling myself very... that for two weeks. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh no. Uh, well, you rest is probably uh, going to be a big help. Yes. Today we're very excited you... to. Yeah. I was going to say, would you like to introduce our guest, Matthew? <laughs> uh, that's what you read my mind. We're very excited to have Lee Harrington on the show today. Lee Harrington is an internationally known spiritual and erotic authenticity educator, gender explorer, spirit worker, eclectic artist, and award-winning author and editor on erotic and sacred experience. His books include Sacred Kink, The Eightfold Paths of BDSM and Beyond, and Traversing Gender, Understanding Transgender Realities. And he is the co-editor of the anthology Queer Magic, Power Beyond Boundaries. Lee has been blogging about sex and spirit since 1998, and his work can be found on 
passionandsoul.com. That is P-A-S-S-I-O-N-A-N-D-S-O-U-L dot com. And let's yeah. bring, yeah, let's bring Lee on. Hi, it's Hello. great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. So, Lee, you operate at the intersection of sacred sexuality and kink. Can you describe that for us? What does that look like for you? What is sacred sexuality to you, and how does it connect with kink? Yeah, so a kink is this huge umbrella term that can cover everything that basically society at large deems to be unusual or aberrant in some way, shape, or form. Men who love men in any way at different parts of our history have been deemed to be kinky or strange or unusual just because we weren't what society expected us to be. So this word kink is a, is a huge opportunity for discussion, and when we talk about the notion of sacred sexuality – when we add it to the idea of anything that people deem to be you know, unusual, strange, or aberrant in society at large, that's huge. Now, for me, kink can be narrowed down a lot to include people who enjoy giving or receiving intense sensation, individuals who enjoy dominance and submission and conscious power exchange, people who enjoy uh, text, uh, textures and have certain fetishisms, or uh, different paraphilia, as it were, things they're into in some way, shape, or form, as well as individuals who enjoy role-playing that crosses over brilliantly uh, when exploring pagan dynamics when we look at the idea of, sh- of uh, you talked before about shadow working, as well as diving into different archetypes. That's so for really me, exciting. Oh, yeah, sorry. For, for me, they all cross over almost instantly with each other because the idea of the sacred is that which is profound and special and engaged with our spirit. And so crossing it over to this thing that gets called kink, there's, there's so many tangents of possibility. So I'm, I'm curious, tell us a little bit about how you, how you discovered this? How did you first um, stumble upon this? This and you describe it so beautifully. This capacity for, um, I think, a, really a, a soul-expanding experience. Mm. So, as a teenager, I mean, even as a little kid, I was somebody who enjoyed intense experiences. Right, I loved firing model rockets. I loved uh, climbing walls. I loved, you know, being active with my body. And as a teen, in my first relationship, my uh, my first boyfriend, he uh, and I explored a lot of this concept of power exchange dynamics that uh, appear in the pagan community all the time in the form of uh, teacher and student as well as other situations where there's, say, a high priest, as well as other congregants who are part of that experience. And he and I explored dominance and submission in very much uh, – there's the top-bottom concept of, of the sexuality of, of who is the person giving and who is the person receiving, but also the notion of 
who holds power in a specific situation. And when he and I were exploring, I was, I'd been exploring uh, Wicca as well as other pagan paths and other spiritual paths for a couple of years at that point. And I, I had this joke that I thought that people were screaming, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, on purpose, right, in the middle of sex. And I think for me, that's how it right? – well, because, I mean, we joke about it, but I, I, how many people do you know that yeah, that, that moment of epiphany at the breakthrough of orgasm mirrors the moment of epiphany in our spiritual experiences, right? And I, I started having those things happen, and, and that's where the, the walls started to break down, and I was really blessed in a lot of ways that I came into the BDSM or – Bondage and bondage and discipline and dominance and submission and sadism and masochism. Those communities uh, in the late '90s, because those dialogues were starting to happen up and down the West Coast, and and so I was starting to be able to have some of those conversations, even if there wasn't words for it quite yet. Now, at that time in the 90s, when you first started connecting with the BDSM community, mm-hmm. uh, was, there, was there an awareness? Was there, uh, were there resources? Were people in the community uh, understanding of uh, your needs, particularly, um, and, and also of, of the spiritual component of these experiences? It really depended on where you were. Right In the Bay Area, there was a, a group that was a splinter off of the Radical Fairy Movement, and the group was called uh, Black Leather Wings. And Fakir Musafar, who was one of the people actively involved in that, actually just crossed over the other side of the veil in the, the last couple of weeks. And, uh, and it was really amazing, that work that's been happening for the last 30-plus years with Black Leather Wings, I think about 30 years. I'm, my brain's doubled out itself, but um, as I'm sure for that moment. But that group was active, but it was it was a by invitation only group, and I would see splinters of people doing that stuff. I, uh, for folks who don't know, I was assigned female at birth, but I live my life as a man, and I've been actively part of the the gay men's community since I was a teen. Well, on and off. Uh, because I, I rode that line of, of gender. So that, that came and went. And so I was really blessed to get to come and go from some of those communities. And I've, in the 90s, I would say that it really depended on who I was talking to. There were some folks that I would say, oh my gosh, that was such a spiritual and transcendental experience. And people would look at me and be like, uh, all I did was fist you. Like, <laughs> Like, that was just hot smut. Why, why are you adding all this other crazy stuff to it? It was just hot and sexy and sweaty. And there were other people who at that moment would, like, I'd be, we'd be breathing together and have that mutual orgasmic experience, even though all they had was their hand up my ass. All they had. Anyway, um, <laughs> th- that moment would happen, and people would get it because we were, we were sharing that moment of – transformation and, and universal bliss. And so even if we didn't have the words for it, they got it. So it really depended on who I was around. 
Now, since that time, do you feel that um, do you feel that there's been any kind of shift in the community? Are are people uh, more aware of different dimensions of kink than they were, say, uh, thirty years ago? Oh. Absolutely, especially on a more public level, because people might have been having these experiences privately, but when – I don't know if you've ever had this happen. I mean I've seen it in the pagan community and the kink community where if somebody comes out and says, I had this thing, and, and even one person says that they're being crazy or you know, being delusional or whatnot, people shut up and don't talk about that experience anymore. And nowadays I see more groups that are talking about energy, right, and psychic mm-hmm. experience and, and connection with God or goddess or whatnot, more groups that are forming. I see more language that is being evolved. I mean, when, when my book, Sacred Kink, the first edition came out in 2008, there was maybe, you know, six or seven people who were actively teaching on these things in the United States and nowadays it's hard to go to a BDSM or kink conference and not have it somewhere on the schedule. Hell, I, went to, I got to teach Sacred Kink 101 a couple of years ago at PantheaCon, right, in San Jose. And that would never have ha- – I, I can't imagine that having happened in the mid-'90s. Now, you, you did share, share with us that um, – that you were assigned a female gender at birth. Um, you know, you are a, a queer man. Would you share with us, um, would you be willing to share with us part of your coming out experience? Well, so this notion of coming out is a layered issue, as you know, as men who love men, right? Because there's coming out to yourself and then there's coming out to family and then there's yes. all the issues around legality when it comes to marriage and like there's, it's layered, right? Yes. And as a teen, uh, I came home from my, my boyfriend had asked me like, is it possible that you're a trans, uh, that you're transgender? And I remember looking at him, I'm like 15 or so at the time, 14, something like that. I think 14, and I said to him, well, how can I be that? I'm not a dude who wears dresses. Because if when we're talking mid-90s, the only examples I saw were on things like Jerry Springer, and it was guys who wore dresses who wanted to be women. Mm-hmm. And when I got to meet a person who was assigned female at birth but was clearly a guy, I had this moment where I went home to my mother, and I, I said, I wonder if this is what might be going on. And she said, well, how about you go to a therapist? We'll hook you up with somebody, and you'll have those conversations. And two years later, uh, I, she had a summary, like the, the therapist and I had a, a conversation, and she said uh, – she, she asked me a whole bunch of questions, and she literally said, because I was predominantly attracted to men, she said, why do you think we would approve the creation of a fag? Sorry, I didn't wow. want on that. For some people, oh. that's a really, really tense and triggering word, right? Um, and to have one's therapist say that, and it was because in the 90s, there was a thing called the Benjamin Standards that basically yes. said if you weren't going to become a heterosexual person who wanted to have a spouse and kids and disappear, you weren't actually transgender. And all trans means is a cross. It just means somebody who was one thing and is now something else. But that language wasn't available, so I hid. 
for a decade, I, I would do things as who I was behind closed doors, but not in public. It wasn't part of my journey. And, you know, including in the pagan community, I ended up joining at one point a kinky all-women's coven called Goddess Smack with the S&M capitalized, which was a fantastic group. They were really great ladies um, where we would do all SM women's only ritual. And it felt like such a gift that because that's how I was walking in the world, I was gifted the opportunity to look into those communities that I would never have been gifted if I had been assigned male at birth as a queer man. I would have never been gifted that. And so there are gifts that I was given because of what that therapist did. Now, that's not positive, but it just is the gift I was given. Right? So that whole mm-hmm. backwards thing. Anyway, um, and so when I... You know, I back in 2000, I got a branding. Like I decided in my head, I was like, well, I'm alternating between male and female. Maybe I'm two spirit, which is a term that's uh, that was actively embraced. It's a, uh, it's a oh Ojibwe term, excuse me. That uh, that notion of a person who dances with two spirits in their body, which is an umbrella concept for LGBTQ you know, AI, et cetera, like all of those acronyms of societal difference. And it's a way for the, you know, in, indigenous and, and native populations of the United, of the Americas to be able to have a term that's not colonial, right? That isn't, a, yeah. isn't imposed on them by people who came in from England and France. Right. And so I was, use, I was starting to use this term, and so I got a brand that was male and a brand that was female, because I went, well, maybe this is what I'm doing. And then later I decided that wasn't a good term for me to use as somebody who is white, right? I decided that wasn't appropriate. And in 2006, I was in Australia and I had this emotional breakdown moment where I tore off a bind, my binder. And a binder is a term for like a compression vest that – a lot of guys use to uh, like to suck in their stomach if they have to be able to wear like a, a button-up shirt uh, is when you'll see most uh, most guys wear them. But uh, so I was wearing this to kind of you know push down my chest, and I stripped off my button my shirt. I stripped off my binder, and I just started screaming and crying. I was on the beach in uh, Manly, Australia, about how I just couldn't deal with what my upper body looked like. Like I just couldn't do it. And it had been a whole evening of, like, emotional awakenings and really deep spiritual working. And so I had this breakthrough moment. And my boy of the time, because we were in a power exchange dynamic, he's like, absolutely, sir. I will support you however you want to do this. And so I, at the time, again, you're supposed to have had a therapist's letter. But having had that experience, I was like, I'm not going to do that. And I'd done so much spiritual work around this and I didn't have a I didn't have a letter that you could take from you know you can't take a a letter from your high priest (laughs) to a doctor which is a shame Mm -hmm. right that'd be fantastic Um, and so I literally went back to my mother and said mom I'm finally going to do this and this is the name I'm going to use is Lee and she's like fantastic let me know how I can support you and so I started going around to doctors and asking how much would it cost to have surgery? And they're like, well, do you have a letter from a therapist? And I'm like, nope, I have a letter from my mother, right? Which is not what you're supposed to do. Like in the perfect letter of what transgender people right. do, I did it all, mm-hmm. quote, 
wrong. It's kind of like people mm-hmm. I know who, who are men who love men, who what you're, quote, supposed to do is come out to yourself and maybe a lover that you have behind closed doors, and then you tell your best friends. And nowadays, I meet youth, especially, who they figure out one thing on the Internet, and the next day they're announcing it to the entire world, and they've started a gay straight along. Like, they're not doing it, quote, the right way anymore. And so the story of what transgender people are supposed to do, I wasn't doing it, and I'm meeting folks all over the place that are no longer following the stereotypical story of needing to be suicidal around their gender or needing to deal with any of that stuff. And so for myself, my own journey involved different steps of coming back to gender and looking at it again, and mine also involved this notion of queerness. Right, as well as this notion of pagan and spirit exploration that layer onto all of this stuff. Because I had one friend who literally tried to give me dude lessons when he found out that I was transgender. He's like, dude, if you're going to be a dude, you have to know how to put everything in your pockets and not carry a purse. It's a dude lesson. Oh, my gosh. Isn't this ridiculous? Like, he was a dude. Oh, brother. I know, Right. And he was trying to teach me how to walk. And somebody looked at him and said, <laughs> do you not understand that he's gay? And, and uh, my friend who was doing this just went, oh, never mind. You're a poof. You could walk however you want to. <laughs> and it was an interesting intersection of like gender and sexuality and culture that was just messed up. <laughs> oh, boy. Right, oh. because... Like, well, it's like I see men who love men who, who are called to working with Dionysus or Bacchus who are carrying a different story of masculinity in worship than people who are called to working with Aries or Mars. Mm-hmm. And so like, I see these same things come up all the time in our communities of worship and spirit, these stories of what is manhood supposed to look like. What is masculinity supposed to look like? What is being a man supposed to look like? What is love supposed to look like? Yeah. Well, Lee, could you tell us a little bit more on what's the words I'm looking for? What is your spiritual practice now? Um, you know, uh, how am I trying to say this? How how do you identify as a pagan, or now, or like how how has your practice evolved? So, uh, it's a good question. Um, there's a part of me that's like the answer is yes, uh, but that's <laughs> a little flippant. No. Uh, so. I had this experience as a youth. I I told my mother at one point that I was really called to work with the goddess that I know as Bear, the Neolithic deity that some people call a totem. I have challenges using that language because of colonialism and whatnot. Uh, But I I had this moment where over the course of my life, I kept on having these different spirits, you know, whether they were animal spirits or spirits of the dead or whatnot that – that I would see or hear or what, and, and, uh, and I kept on feeling like I would make choices in my life 
and a spirit would be like, oh, I'm not yours. But I knew I was going to belong to something. Like I felt very called to that or someone. And when I told her that I had had this visitation and this, this experience where I knew that I was going to be doing spirit work for Mother Bear, my mother literally dug because I'm at least third generation of people who have had spiritual um, experiences outside of a framework of what society considers normal. Uh, my mother joked that she was a goddess worshiping Lutheran, and people would ask her, how's that work? And she's like, God and I have an understanding. We're good. You can stop worrying about me. <laughs> um, uh, she did crystal healing, any lovely, lovely woman. But uh, when uh, she literally dug through her files, and she found this drawing I had done, when I was in elementary school, they had had a snow day and like an unexpected snow. And I walked home from school, but I no showed at home and people were trying to like my mother didn't know where I was and she was freaking out. And she came home like I came home and I was covered in snow. And I apparently said to her, the bear walked me home. And she pulled out this drawing and it was me, maybe six inches tall and this bear, this big cartoonish bear that was maybe, you know, 12, 14 inches tall that was glowing, like a glowing line around it. And I recognized that drawing and knew that, oh, she's been with me for years. And so uh, 13 years ago, I, uh, like I knew that I was called to, to serve her and work with her on, on this plane, uh, this round in this, this lifetime. And the term that I use is God slave or God owned. And it's a tricky term because of uh, white supremacy and how slavery still affects people to this day. And yet it's a term that gets used in the BDSM community for the notion of consensually handing your will over to another person or another individual and having that be controlled by having made agreements with them. And so for me, it really called to me in that parallel with kink. And so I ended up doing a, a series of rituals and dedicating myself. And since then, I mean, a, along the way I've, I've done working in all kinds of different pantheons and there's a lot of people who would refer to me as a term of uh, eclectic, mm. but I am owned. The word that I use is owned, but I, I do work for, um, for mother bear and then I also have a deep devotional practice for the star goddess from fairy tradition who uh, Newt or Nuit or the star goddess has – she is so profoundly like, – I, I don't have the words for it even right now. Like She has stirred my spirit on such profound levels. And uh, – yeah, so those are the two primary that I work with, but I I also have a I, – I got a tattoo earlier this year that uh, says Scribe of Thoth in hieroglyphics with oh, uh, nice. Sashat and Ma'at walking, over, uh, walking side by side with him, and uh, Sashat being the goddess of writing and Ma'at being the goddess of balance. And, and so in doing that work was a reminder and a, a statement uh, – proclamation of really making sure that my work it's may I write the will of the gods is the intention behind it. And so mm, I, I have three powerful. Yeah, right. I have three body modifications that state the statements. May I hear the will of the gods. May I speak the will of the gods. May I write the will of the gods. 
Now, the funny thing being that I thought the whole write the will to gods would be like, I'd be able to sit down and finish these unfinished books, and won't this be great? Apparently, the will of the gods was for me to do grant writing for the LGBT community and raise money. That is less sexy. <laughs> that, is, that is not what I signed up. I mean, like, it is what I signed up for, but it's not what I thought I was signing up for, which I find the gods tend to do. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Um, but speaking, you know, speaking of writing, um, I definitely yeah. want to highlight Passion and Soul, which obviously Passion and Soul is, is your website, but it's so much more than that. You, you have a podcast, you um, have a, a blog, and I'm getting one amazing feedback about how rich uh, your essays are and, and how helpful. Um, and I, I, I want to hear you talk about your um, Patreon launch. What, yeah. um, what's coming up with that? Right. So um, Passion and Soul started out years ago as uh, – back in 98 um, – as me blogging my sexual evolution online as a queer being, as a sexually adventurous being, and turned into – back when we called them internet journals – uh, I had these moments where I'm like vlogging, right? That means something. Okay, that's cool. But um, <laughs> I feel like a very young dinosaur at times. But, not to be confused uh, yeah, with vlogging. Not vlogging, flogging. That'd be that'd be hilarious to do a flogging vlog. <laughs> that'd be great. I love this yeah. idea. Uh, I would watch that. Uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, Actually, for people who are interested in that, I can't recommend enough kinkacademy.com. They're fantastic people and do great education. But uh, I've actually done some free stuff for them on Sacred Kink. But, uh, but yeah, so I started blogging back then and have been doing so for years with a lot of it being that I needed somewhere to express these pieces that I was personally exploring. And then people asked me, oh, can you keep doing that? So I did. And I started podcasting then in 2011 when the folks at eroticawakening.com, uh, Dan and Dawn, who are an amazing pagan priest and priestess, who are polyamorous as well, they, uh, they asked me to be part of their show. And I was on so often that they offered me to just come and do something every single month. And then it spun off into my own. It's been my, my show's been on hold for a little over six months. But now that I've found my own physical space and I'm coming back into that work, my hope is to get back on and relaunch the show, which is part of that Patreon that you mentioned. I'm going to be launching in the next two weeks part of uh, th this, this Patreon project because I have created this really amazing brand new space. I live in Anchorage, Alaska. And for people who are like, what, Anchorage? The answer is yes, Anchorage. Um, the Anchorage, <laughs> Anchorage has a pagan community center. Who knew, right? And has wow. multiple covens of all different sorts and has a Norse mead-making group. Like, we have a lot more than you'd think up here. And, uh, hmm. and so I have decided to create this space where I've converted a one-bedroom apartment into a temple space with, with shrines set up to a diverse collection of gods that I've already set, as well as a huge ancestral altar that's being slowly built that's also watched over by Mari, the, uh, who crosses over to fairy tradition, but also my, my mother's family's Basque, and so it's coming down that lineage. But I've been building this space with the intention being of 
every single day doing formal prayer work and spell work and having a space where people who from the outside want to be able to either physically come here or say you have ancestral work at home but you can't set up an ancestral shrine, let me take those images for you and have a space for them to be up. Because I know a lot of people who are in the broom closet, as it were, and can't necessarily mm-hmm. do some of this work, can't put up a Dionysus mm-hmm. altar, but know what I can do? I can light, light an extra candle for you. And I'm making available – I have for years I've been setting aside my uh, divination practice, but I've been called to pick that back up, so I'm having that available for Patreon practi- uh, people. And at the $35 level, I'm also being uh, – I've been called for a while, but I'm finally doing it, uh, sending out copies of Traversing Gender to medical schools, law schools, and prisons so that information is available out there for people on this concept of transgender realities – because it's not being discussed enough, and with that funds, I have the ability to afford a book and pay for shipping and whatnot. So a lot of it is the ability for me to be able to do the capital W work that I do in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of my other stretch goals, as it were, include money to be able to hire devotional artists to different deities to pay them to do the work they're doing, because I'm a big believer that the pagan communities, the sexual orientation communities, all of this stuff, we only make our worlds better by actually supporting the people in our communities. And so right now, with some funds that I had, I'm paying uh, Laura Tempest-Zakroff, who wrote the amazing Sigil Magic book that recently came out. Um, I've hired mm-hmm. her to do some devotional painting uh, painting work to be able to go up in the, in the Thoth area of the shrine. Like that like if we create these symbiotic relationships, and I'm hoping to do that with the Patreon as well, to create more symbiotic relationships within our communities. Because I, I really think that, I mean, I, I see a lot of folks, and I'm glad Amazon exists. And for people who live <laughs> in a closeted world or live in an, a way that they are, uh, if they're in food deserts, right, or or media deserts where they can't get to a bookstore, Amazon is amazing, right? It's a great technology. I live in Alaska. There are people now who can get food that they couldn't get otherwise because of Amazon Prime, literally, because they live out in villages, right? This stuff has changed reality, but I could also choose instead of buying some random sculpture of, you know, Dionysus on – I don't know why like he keeps being on my tongue recently. I clearly need to finish that shrine. I get it. Um, <laughs> but I could do that or I could hop on Etsy and I could give money to a lovely up-and-coming uh, genderqueer street artist who is currently making prayer candles to different deities in their younger personifications – Right, has a, has a sculpture, has a, a painting of Hera in a cute little white dress with a peacock walking behind her that is just so sweet. And we don't see those aspects that I could buy a young Dionysus prayer candle from her and give mm. her funds she wouldn't, or them funds that they wouldn't have otherwise. Why right. can't I gift those things forward? And so me, that's part of it as well as creating that awareness that we each have the possibility every single day to recreate what the next day of reality is. I mean, it's very much to me what the myth creation, myth slash truth of the star goddesses creation of the universe story states. 
which is that when she has an orgasm and she births out the stars and the cosmos and all the planets and they come flooding out of her ejaculate slash his ejaculate slash their ejaculate because it, no gender, right? This is before gender. So I, when that happens, somebody said to me once, and it's stuck in my spirit, that because she made the universe by coming, each of us, every single time we come, we have the ability to create the world anew as well. And to me, that's part of how sexual practice ties into spiritual practice is that every single time I ejaculate, every single time I come, I have the ability to remake the universe and choose what to do the next day and what spirit work I am going to evoke in the next day and invoke in the next day. And so for me, I, I love the idea of coming being a sacred practice because it is. And I'm, I'm pro-coming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we, we do have a listener question. Matthew, do you want to uh, share that with Lee? Yeah. So uh, someone asks, I hear there is a right kind of rope and a wrong kind of rope. What is the mm. right kind of rope to use for bondage, particularly shibari? Okay. So let's define some words for people who don't know these terms. <laughs> rope bondage also is referred to as erotic restraint. Right? So for people out there who the words rope bondage is big and scary, let's demystify it a little bit. And we're talking about sensual, erotic, or artistic restraint of the body or decoration of the body. And shibari simply means to bind or to tie. Shibari or kenbaku is either to, to bind or to tie. And they're terms that come out of, out of Japanese language. So there's a lot of people who are like, oh, it's this ancient mystical art. It just is a different name for tying someone up. We are clearly American-centric and English-American-centric. If we think that these are all fancy, magical words, no, shibari just means tying someone up. So just to demystify that. Now, the reason it's, people get really up about this word and why they love it is it's a specific aesthetic, a specific look. And so if you've ever seen kimono that have the, the rope sash tied around on the top and it's, it's beautifully done in all the layers of the fabric – right? It get, that gets passed on to this type of rope work, rope work as well. So when they talk about the idea of is there a right type of rope or a wrong type of rope, to me it's about what's your purpose. If I am doing sacred rope work, I want to have rope that takes on that energy that I am passing on. And for some people, it's like what color candle do you choose? For some people, if it's doing love working, you're going to choose a red candle. So I could choose, if I'm doing romance-based and love-based work, I could choose red rope to emphasize that spirit working and emphasize that magic working as we're having that erotic experience or connection experience. Right? So we could have a color is what makes it right or wrong. It could be a material that there is nylon rope or what's called MFP, which is multifilament polypropylene. It's just MFP. It's easier. Um, or whatnot that are silky and smooth, or even bamboo rope that glides across the skin. If you're being really sensual, that's fantastic. There's also hemp or jute rope, which are natural fibers that leave beautiful marks and patterns across our lovers and have a, a more traditional look when it comes to the photography that's out there. 
but it's also firmer and stiffer and has a has a rougher feel to it, which for some people is so delicious. It's like um, uh, it's the difference between going on a soft walk and going for a hard run and you end up sweaty at the end. Right. Both are valid ways to move your body. They're just different. Right. And there's other people who might use something really hard that has splinters in it that, you know, if I'm putting it something on someone's genitals, I want to want to have a lot of conversations about that ahead of time or else they're going to be annoyed at me afterwards. <laughs> right. So to me, that idea of right rope or wrong rope, it's really about what you want to do with your rope. And there's some ropes that are better suited for different things. But I think all rope is possible to be able to be used. Really stiff, hard plastic rope, maybe not as good for being soft and sexy. Uh, and if I'm using something that uh, has splinters in it, again, like, there's, it's going to be a consideration. And so I would consider, if you're talking about traditional, quote, traditional, uh, and I always have challenges with the word traditional because, like, people say traditional witchcraft or traditional Wicca. And I'm like, eh. Gerald Gardner was less than 100 years ago. So let's have a conversation. <laughs> uh, not bad or good, but what does tradition look like? What does tradition mean? And so if we're talking about what's been produced since the photography uh, that, that came out of Japan originally in the 1920s out of the photo clubs that started showing rope bondage and, uh, and came from Japan to the United States with folks like John Willie um, carrying it over out of World War, just post-World War I into World War II, that time period. If I'm looking at the photo clubs of that time period, traditional rope is going to be either hemp or jute. But if we look at the beautiful stuff that's done today, including in Japan, the variety of textures and material is all over the place. And to me, it mirrors the notion of what kind of incense is right to use for doing a specific prayer work or a specific spell working? Well, are we going with something that has been set out coming from ceremonial magic working? That might have a slightly different answer than if I'm talking to somebody who is, um, who is coming from Santeria, right? We might have different answers for doing similar kinds of stuff. Personally, I think the only wrong incense is the stuff that comes – like if you see incense that costs less than a dollar a package, it's because the, 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 the stuff that smells good was glued onto that, those sticks using industrial glue. Mass-produced industrial glued incense, you are burning industrial strength glue inside your enclosed temple spaces and causing toxic fumes to go inside your nostrils. I'm just saying for me, that's not sexy. Like, that's not what I want to do with my body. Um, but if it's the only thing you have budgets for, like it's pros and cons and all of this stuff, whether it's rope bondage or whether it's access to specific materials, like there's so many layers to all this stuff. And then I flail about and don't always know what to do. Sure. Now, one thing <laughs> and following that, and that was a thank you for that beautiful answer, by the way. And, and I think it's very inspiring um, one thing that I stumbled on uh, exploring passionandsoul.com, and I'm very curious about, is fiber magic working. What are yeah. fiber magic workings? So have you ever heard of um, dream catchers or spirit catchers? Yes. Yeah. Okay. 
So the idea behind that is that you take either cat gut or some sort of fine line and you weave it around in a circle in a spider web or some sort of other pattern and that you hang it to be able to catch spirits or dreams that aren't supposed to come into the space or vice versa to capture the things that need to be able to be held in this space um, and let everything else through and past it. Right, that, that's a general concept and it's done by every single time you take that thread or that fiber as you wrap it around, you twist across, twist, tuck, pull, twist, tuck, pull, twist, tuck, pull, oftentimes thinking about your intention as you go. May this be held. May this protect. May this watch over. May this hold us. May we be safe. With every single time we twist that line, we catch that line, we move that line. That kind of concept appears in rug weaving in Turkey. It appears in uh, basket weaving in the Northwest United States. It ends up, that concept ends up appearing across cultures of as we take a fiber, we weave intention into our working. And that's, that's one concept of fiber magic. There's also, say, if we look at, is it the Odyssey or the Iliad, um, where they end up untying the piece of rope and a, and a thunderstorm and a storm comes out of it, the wind ends up released from the bag? Oh, uh, um, I, think I think it's, it's the, the Odyssey. Odyssey, but I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, I, think, um, yeah I think it's the where, Odyssey. Where that's a concept, right? That a knot was tied to hold a storm in, to hold air in. And the moment it was released, spirit came, the gods came, and breathed them across the entirety of the Aegean Sea. That is a not magic. The power and the magic we can do with simply tying the knot. How many, I mean, we use the word tying the knot, right? As a way that we are binding two people or two tribes together. We look at the idea of hand fasting cords, that I bind your hand to your hand, weaving our fates into one another. We look at the, the three sisters in uh, Greek mythology or, uh, or um, ancient religion, and the idea of three sisters, one who spins the yarn, one who measures the yarn, one who cuts the yarn, and the one who measures the yarn is blind. These are all ideas where if we look just across, across the entirety of the world, fiber ends up coming up in spiritual practice. And so to me, this ends up creating a huge tapestry that we can pull on to whether it's, you know, people who are, say, doing embroidery work to make sacred cloth. I, I met this amazing um, older witch i'm guessing she's in her 60s or so uh so i shouldn't say uh anyway this lovely white-haired witch who came to my i did a completely non-kinky non-sexual fiber magic class there one year and she came up afterwards and was crying and she said she'd always wondered what she was doing for her coven because she never felt like she was doing enough and she realized what she'd been doing is she had literally been sewing or embroidering, whatever, every single tapestry, every single cloth that was going to go down on the altars, she had done from the base on up prep work to set the intentions for 
every holy day their coven ever did for over 20 years. Wow. And I'm like, how is that not sacred and magical? But because she's not the one up there waving her arms around and saying the big flashy words, she didn't feel like she was enough of a priestess. She didn't feel like she was sacred enough until somebody Mm -hmm. else said, you know, embroidery is a sacred act and told her you're doing magic and you've been doing magic. And I mean, how often are all of us doing something in that vein, right? Even if it's the act of choosing our sacred garb. Oh, that's I'll never look at needlepoint the same. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a great book. I, I recently co-edited an anthology uh, called Queer Magic, Power Beyond Boundaries um, with Ty Phoenix Castillan, who was who's an amazing spirit. Like, they're just amazing. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but there is an individual who uh, talked in their essay about – Uh, doing stuff as a drag queen as a form of invocation of the goddess as a gay man. Yes. Because as they donned the sacred garb, they called out her name. The idea that literally that, that they were, you know, drawing down the moon slash invoking that essence because they were pulling on a pair of high heels and painting their face with the sacred paints. Mm-hmm. How beautiful is that? I love yeah. it. You know, and I know a lot of gay men who get shit about the fact that, like, oh, clearly you're, you know, you're just doing this weird dress-up thing. And I'm like, it can also be holy. Absolutely. Well, I think one thing that a, a lot of people may not be aware of is is the the precedent for that and how in so many different cultures cross-dressing was a sacred act because by doing this by crossing these boundaries the individual was um embodying the the deity and and performing a sacred function for the people yeah no that's absolutely the case i uh I not too a couple of years ago I got to go to a presentation on uh, LGBTQ plus experience in Native Alaskan traditions, and somewhere in Southeast Alaska, there um, I'm thinking it was Tlingit, but I don't hold me to that. Uh, they were talking about how there used to be a lodge, right? The lodges are the the large like the the village conglomerations of sorts but but the big lodge that usually the lodges were things like lodge of the eagle and lodge of the whale and when the russians came through they found lodge of the man who dresses like woman oh wow oh clearly these are this is a lodge that has been kept that, that has been horribly reviled and they must be in shame and we will rename their lodge right because the russians came in from a russian orthodoxy christian framework Right. And so they said, you are wrong. You can't be a man who dresses like woman. But if all of the other things that are listed were all highly sacred, man who dresses like woman must be a sacred enough thing to be listed as being a lodge. Like that, right. It appears all over the world, 
That's exactly it. You, you see it in Turkey. You see it in Central Africa. You see, like, it's all over the world. I, I think that's, that's a great point. I really appreciate you bringing that up. And what is, I heard you mention, um, uh, the Queer Magic Project. Yeah. Tell us about so, that. Yeah, it was an it's an anthology. Was an anthology. I'm saying was because we spent like a year crying and sweating over it. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it's an anthology that Ty Castian Phoenix and Ty Phoenix Castian and I did. Um, it's called Queer Magic: Power Beyond Boundaries, and we had over 40 contributors um, from all over the world, uh, predominantly English speaking. We have uh, a, a little bit that has some Spanish thrown in, but anyway. Uh, some amazing contributors that talk about everything from hyper-academic essays on ergy experience in ancient Icelandic folklore, right, wow. on one end, yes. to, to, to queering black tantra and a, a, this amazing uh, African-American woman from uh, Atlanta talking, uh, named uh, Maisha Najumazal talking about how as a black woman, woman she has the power to reclaim uh, tantra from a white industrial complex. And then in another direction, you have an uh, uh, amazing cartoon strip about being a queer witch in the city to beautiful poetry to painting. Like it's all over the place. And it was such an honor to get to edit that project and, and be part of this creative construct. Wow, that is powerful. <laughs> yeah, right, right, including one piece that ended up getting written about uh, the unnamed path. <laughs> hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was it was great to be able to have that in in the book as well, and and get to and it's. I, I was telling myself that, oh, clearly that project is done. I'm not going to work on it anymore. Like that book is out. Um, but uh, I have a feeling that probably in two years or so, I'm going to put a call out for number two. And it's mostly because I have uh, a sequel to it because I have uh, – there There was a couple of interviews that were done. Um, there's two interviews in the book of uh, queer of queer uh, spirit working – queer elders of different sorts um, – one who's a Shoshone two-spirit elder named Clyde Hall, and one who's a Blackberry, who's a Lakumi elder. But Ooh, five interviews wow. were actually done for the book, but we only ended up having room for two of them. And mm-hmm. so uh, of the three that are left, one of those elders has already passed away since the interview was done. Um, oh. So I really feel moved that, uh, that that needs to get out in print at some point. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So at some point, I'm actually... Uh, I, I, uh, I'm going to make that happen at some point. There's actually, though, if, if anybody is doing a search online, Queer Magic Power Beyond Boundaries is the one with the giant handprint on it. Three mm-hmm. months later, a book by um, Tomas um, Prower came out called Queer Magic, LGBT and Spirituality, LGBT Magic and Spirituality Around the World, I believe is their subtitle. And I'm about halfway through that book, and it's fantastic. The books have, like, the books have no... Like, I mean, they're both similar because they talk about queerness and magic, but theirs is like history of where in Africa you find different spirits that end up getting labeled by outsiders as being LGBT and how that ties over. Like, it's and they and he does it by uh, 
by cat by um, continent by co- goes continent by continent and breaks stuff down. It's really excellently done. While queer magic, um, um, power- queer, queer ahead, magic, please. LGBT plus spirituality and culture from around the world. That would be it. Yeah. Um, so it's also a fantastic book, but they are very. Um, uh, ours is an anthology that covers a lot of diverse personal experience and individual essays and artwork. Uh, mm-hmm. While his is an academic treatise that also has uh, exploratory, uh, like a little thought process after each segment that he does, he has things like, okay, we just learned about X, Y, or Z concept. Your exercise is to, consi- like, uh, is to consider X, Y, and Z co- thing, right? Now that you've uh, done this, try doing this. So it's got an interesting little uh, experimentation element to it, too. Wow. Hmm. Well, Lee, I yeah. there's so much that and I think we're going to have to ask you to come on again <laughs> because there's so much we want to discuss. Yeah. Um there was a a request um a listener wants to hear more about erotic alchemy and the introduction yeah. of sex magic and I mean I just don't want to rush a conversation like that. We need time well, to how about this? To really I'm... do justice. Uh, how about this? For um, for that listener who wanted to hear about erotic alchemy, I'm going to be recording my next podcast in the next two weeks, and I'm going to put a post-it note at this very moment on my screen that says erotic alchemy, and I'm going to have that be the next topic so they can tune in over pa- at Passion and Soul Podcast. Oh, that's wonderful. Awesome. Cool. And we'll definitely share a link when you get that published. So, yay. Beautiful. <laughs> And so I really appreciate you having me on the show today. It's been absolutely fantastic, and I really thank you so much. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Yeah. I I think you covered everything, but do you have anything last minute um, like you want to promote other than, you know, you can promote your Patreon again, but anything else other than that? (laughs) I think for me, it's that notion of interstitiality, like that idea of supporting our own. If I could plant only one seed out there right now, it's mm. queer men. Go out there and support more queer men who are doing the work, right? Whether it's spiritual mm. work or artwork or sexual working or doing STD education or are doing anything out there. Instead of mass buying your pride rings from a shop in China, what would happen if you bought something from a lovely artist online who has a brand new shop? What would happen? Mm-hmm. So that would be the seed that I would plant for folks. Yeah, mm. thank you. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to add, Matthew? Um, I just want to remind uh, listeners that there's still time to sign up for Stone and Stang. Um, Stone and Stang only happens once every two years. Um, so to say 2018 is October. Um, it begins uh, Friday, October 5th uh, in the Santa Cruz Mountains in the Redwoods. Go to stoneandstang.com for more information and to sign up. And um, I don't, there might still be time to submit um, workshops for people who are interested in presenting. I'm not sure. I know we are working on an agenda. Uh, We have a draft agenda. There might still be time to submit, but there's definitely time to sign up to attend. So it's going to be amazing. Andrew Raymer is attending as our keynote speaker, and um, we'd love to uh, see you guys out there in the Redwoods. And that's all I have. 
Do you have a uh, date for when is the last possible minute to sign up to attend? Uh, let me see. Let me go to the site now and see if that information oh. is on there. I think it if, if it does give, um, I think it might be the old um, deadline that has been extended. But let me take a look. Stone and Sang 2018. I'm on the website well, while now. You're, while you're looking for that, I'm going to say we will not be having, like our next episode is going to be September 23rd. We won't be here on the on the 9th. That was supposed to be when our next show was going to air, but that is during the what is it? The Worldwide Wicca Summit that uh, Pagan's Tonight Radio is hosting. So that I believe is going from I think it's I'm looking at my calendar. Uh, I don't think I have it on my calendar, <laughs> but it's going from like the third to the 10th, I believe. Of, yeah, it should be the 3rd to the 10th of September. I will double-check that and post that to the page. But, yeah, we will not be here on the 9th. We'll be back on September 23rd with a brand-new episode. Did you find it yet, Matthew? Yeah, so what I'm seeing, uh, September 21st is the deadline to register. So that definitely gives... Uh, listeners some time so visit stoneandstang.com if you have any questions if you're sitting on the fence or you want more information um, you can contact us via stoneandstang.com or you can reach out to me directly I'm more than happy to answer any questions Um, and it's going to be I think just the opportunity to meet Andrew Raymer in person and to hear him speak is uh, makes the weekend more than worth it. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, I think that's it. Yeah. yeah but uh, thank you again, Lee, for being on the show. And thank you again, Matthew, for being an amazing co-host. Thank you. Uh, and we are going to play out with Ooh, we haven't done any of Alexander James Adams before. Let's go ahead and play out with uh, the dance of hoof and horn. And we'll see everybody in about a month. (laughs) Bye. Be blessed. She's ready. Shadow lit and so unseen. Safe eyes so wide and steady. Raises up his answer. Sends her breathing. Rises from his forest bed with love that's hot and freezing. Her little green and flower 
are listening to Pagans Tonight. Pagans Unite on Pagans Tonight. Many paths, one network. For over five years, we've been the place to connect with the best, brightest, and most trusted voices in the pagan world. Every night is Pagans Tonight. 